Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London. And this week we have got an enormously distinguished, we're tremendously honoured that Asan Mani, the chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board, one of the most formidable figures, not just in Pakistan, but in world cricket, has joined us ahead, of course, of the Pakistan Cricket Test Series coming up in a couple of weeks' time. We are absolutely thrilled to have you with us, Hassan. Very much honoured. I think, first of all, Hassan, would you like to give us a little heads up on the Pakistan cricket squad that uh, has come over to England? A lot of the players are familiar to us from uh, international cricket and some from county cricket. But are there some new names that um, listeners might want to watch out for? Uh, First of all, thank you so much for inviting me to this. I've been listening to your podcasts uh, with great fascination. You had some wonderful people in there. Uh, But I'm very, very grateful to you for having me on this. Um, Yes, we've got a very young squad here. And in these unusual circumstances, in a bubble. And some of them were a little nervous to come here. But it was important for cricket, not only for world cricket, I felt, but also for cricket to come together and support each other. We, you know, I felt it was very important we have the team over here. And they, they've all sort of pitched in very, very well. We've got a couple of people who the English crowds and fans will not be familiar with. Even Pakistanis living here won't. There's a young fast bowler, Naseem Shah. He's burst onto the scene recently. He's uh, under 18 and he took five wickets against Sri Lanka and Karachi in the test match. He is a wonderful prospect. From all accounts, when I talk to the likes of uh, Vaseem Akram or Vakar Yunus, they rate him of a fast bowler with great, great potential. That's very exciting. So he he will have a, wonder, a wonderful opportunity not only to work with Vakar Yunus, but also to play in England at such a young age. And I expect him to be there in the final eleven. Uh, then you've got people like Abed Ali, who's now in his 30s, but had a wonderful season in Pakistan. He played two or three test matches there earlier on this year and the tail end of last year. And I think he averages in the two tests, he averaged about 160. Mm. And then someone who may not figure in the test matches, but is there for the experience to work with the likes of Yunus Khan and Misbah is uh, Hadar Ali. He's an under-19 player that Pakistan has had. Um, but you never know. I mean, they, they say he's got an enormous potential. So let's see how, how bold the uh, tour selection committee feels about him. We have an exciting team, a bit inexperienced, but we have in the back room people like Misbah, Yunus, Bakar Yunus, Mushtaq Ahmed, you know, people of great, immense experience to mentor these young people and young players. And hopefully we'll play very competitive cricket and uh, good cricket this summer. I think everybody in England will be very grateful to all the Pakistanis for coming over and supporting English cricket and giving us a Test Series and then a a T20 Series afterwards. It's a shame that none of them will be able to see them live in stadiums, but they'll be very much appreciated by the television viewers, I'm sure. Actually, you know, we've had to go through this in the Middle East when we've played in neutral venues. We've played Test matches with less than 300 people. So for us, in a way, or for our team, it'll be sort of just going back a year to where they were. 
Of course, after cricket came back to Pakistan, it's been enormously different. But they've had that experience for 10 years of playing in empty stadiums. Not quite empty. There's always a little troop of travelling um, Pakistan fans whenever I went to a test in those stadiums, but certainly, you know, they were pretty cavernous and pretty... Um, Echoey. Yes. Not much atmosphere in them, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Sam, what's your reaction to this news over the weekend that Ian Botham is going to be given a peerage? Of course, everybody who follows and loves Pakistan will know that Ian Botham, Lord Botham, as he's going to be, made some very discourteous remarks about Pakistan, which struck me as being quite exceptionally ignorant when he made them. What's your feeling about his award of the peerage this week? Look, as a cricketer, he probably deserves it. One of the greatest all-rounders England has had. I don't like politics and cricket coming together. And I feel he's been used a little bit in giving him a peerage for, I consider, the wrong reason. He deserves a peerage, but for cricket. As far as his remarks are concerned, I think one of the newspapers in England got his mother-in-law to come to Pakistan. He'd said he would, it's the sort of place to send one's mother-in-law to. I think he was referring specifically to Faisalabad. (laughs) She spent about a month in Pakistan and loved it. As I am absolutely confident that anyone who goes to Pakistan spends time there, as Peter, you do, you know, regularly, falls in love with the place. It's a very different culture, different way of viewing the world. But um, the perception of Pakistan for people from outside is very different to the reality there. I think that's absolutely right, Asin. I think Peter and I have actually played more matches in Pakistan than Ian Botham ever did. I think he only played one test match there, as as far as I remember, for uh, injuries and other reasons. But um, it's certainly a wonderful place to play or watch cricket in, I would say, like no other. And it's it's so good that international visitors are coming back to Pakistan. We'll we'll come on to that, I think, later on. We um, suggested on this um, only last week, thinking of cricketing peers, that... um, Michael Holding might be given a peerage, might have added something to the House of Lords for his very moving interventions on Black Lives Matter and racism. Another name that we thought of in response to both of them who'd really add to the House of Lords as a cricketer and as a human being and for all sorts of other reasons would be Mike Brearley. Well, Mike, uh, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's one of the few really thinking cricketers. He would add huge value to uh, the House of Lords. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he led the under-25 team to Pakistan in, in what, in the um, 90, late 1960s? Yes, that's 67. right. I think we had Majid Khan as our captain and Mike as the England captain. He, he's always been very popular wherever he's been. It's pretty, he, the best time or part of his cricketing career was in, spent in America uh, while he was studying there. Uh, so cricket lost out on him when he was uh, probably at his prime as a player. But he came back as a leader, and I don't think there's there are many in England who could compare be compared to him as a captain. I think that's absolutely right, and um, it was absolutely unique as an England captain. He almost defined captaincy, and he wrote, he, of course, written very, very well about it as well. Left a legacy as a captain, and of course, of course, he managed Ian Bolton very well. He did. Yep, that's a very nice point. Maybe he even managed Geoffrey Boycott very well. <laughs> <laughs> Managing the pair of them in the same team is a, is a challenge to anybody. Yeah. Asan, tell us about the position of chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board. It's a position which is very hard for English listeners to fully understand because 
of course, you are appointed by the Prime Minister, in, in this case, one of the greatest cricketers the world has ever known, Imran Khan. It's as if Boris Johnson had appointed the chair of the English Cricket Board. Perhaps you could explain briefly the governance and status of the PCB. It's not quite as you say it. What happens in Pakistan is that the patron, it used to always be the president of the country, but Mr. Uh, Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, decided that he would make decisions on cricket and get involved. The patron has the right to nominate two people onto the board, but not appoint the chairman. The chairman is actually elected by the board itself. But in our culture, if you have the prime minister nominating someone, everyone looks over their shoulders to see whether, you know, one of them has been anointed. And in my case, it's quite amusing, actually. I was, it was August 2018. We were up in uh, the foothills of Himalayas in our cottage there. Uh, when I had a message from Imran, simply said, call me ASAP. The ASAP was in big capitals. So I realized it must have been something particularly important. So I rang him. I said, uh, is all well? He'd just been elected prime minister a month before. And he said, yes, um, the incumbent chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board has resigned and I'm appointing you. So I said, um, hang on, can we please uh, just talk about it a little bit? Because I've got some you know, very clear views on what I would do if I was chairman. And he said, we'll talk about it later and cut me off mid-sentence. <laughs> So I was, I started taking the phone in another room. I went back to our living room and I said to the family, I said, I better go down to Islamabad. It's a two hours drive and go and talk to him before he announces anything. And just then my phone started ringing. He, he got on his phone, obviously, and did something called a tweet. And suddenly the whole world knew that I, I'd been sort of nominated. So I was literally drafted into the job rather than in any, given any option in it. But of course, I met him later on and we talked about it. And I said, look, I've got very clear views. He said, what are they? I said, the domestic cricket needs a revamp. It's in a terrible state the way it is. We'll never produce the cricketers Pakistan needs. The system is totally corrupted by the way the whole domestic structure is set up. The governance of the board is very untransparent. And from what I've little I've looked at the constitution, it needs a total overall and revamp and modernized. And you need professional people running the board and not people who happen to be the flavor of the month. So he said, yes, go and do all of that. Um, that's fine. So he said, the only thing he asked me was, when you say the domestic cricket needs revamping, how many teams would you have playing? And I said, eight. And he said, no, I think six is the right number. And I said, why? And we had a good half an hour discussion on this. And he said to me, if you have, we've got four provinces in Pakistan. It's Punjab, you're going to split into two, so that will make it five, and then you've got to cover the northern areas. He said, if you do anything more than that, then what will happen is, uh, looking forward, in the future, some the government will come along and say, you know, add another team here and there, and suddenly you'll have 12 or 15 uh, teams playing again. So I, I, I thought that was a fair, fair point, actually. So I said, okay, let me think about it. And we then had a couple of meetings on it, for a long time, I felt eight was probably the right number, but I think he, uh, I came up with the solution, which sort of overcame my concerns. So we ended up with a structure which was covered uh, six teams. My concern with the system we had was that we had 16 teams playing first-class cricket and another 16 or 18 teams playing what they called second-11 cricket, or the grade-two cricket. 
when I looked at the grade two, and I just thought to myself, what's going on there? So in this first class, you had eight departments playing, people like the airlines, the banks, government gas companies, all sorts of things, uh, and eight regional associations. Below that, in the grade two, uh, I found uh, the two tournaments were not taking place at the same time. So I was quite intrigued by that. One was in the middle of our cricket season, and one was really at a time which was not conducive to play too much cricket. It was getting hot by then. And I realized that what was happening was that the players who played for the departments went and played grade two cricket for the regions. Uh, so they were uh, blocking the pathway for youngsters to come through grade two uh, into the first class game. And, uh, and when I looked at who was leading the table at that particular time, it was Faisalabad. Of their 11 players, I think nine or 10 were from various departments. And we have a promotion and re relegation system. So Faisalabad was going to get promoted and it would have lost all its players, would yeah. have gone back to their departments. So the system was totally warped. And, you know, uh, and this was just my looking at it in about the week between the time Imran had called me and by the time I sort of got my head around this. Thing. And I said, clearly that's wrong. We have to change this. And then I, when I looked at the averages, the first inning scores of our team is probably first class matches in Pakistan. The first inning scores was one of the lowest in the world, lower than Zimbabwe. So I knew there was something wrong there. It was either the quality of cricket or the wickets, or, uh, but something was not right. So this, I came to the conclusion we need to have quality, not quantity, without cutting back on the opportunity for youngsters to uh, play the game and to work their way up if they're good enough. So what we've done is we've set up six cricket associations. Between them, there are about 100 cities playing cricket, so about an average of about 16 or 17 per, per cricket association. And under that, we will have somewhere in the region of three and a half or 4,000 clubs. What has been damaged in Pakistan from the time when I was a youngster playing there is there's no organized school cricket, there's no organized university cricket. Mm -hmm. That needs to be restarted. It's, it's cr crying out for it. And uh, really, sort of for a country with the number of youth we have, which is anywhere, you know, I think under 30, I would guess about 40 million people, you have to give them the opportunity to play the game and show their, their talents. I've always said or maintained that we produce cricketers in Pakistan in spite of our system, not because of our system. And we've got to make the system where we capture the best and give every young child the opportunity to sort of work his way up through a proper structured pathway. So we're working towards that. Uh, there have been obstacles uh, in the way. Uh, people don't like change. They go to court. They try and stop us from doing it. I don't even bother to look at those things anymore. I'm just carrying on unless a court tells me to carry <clears throat> on. And fortunately for us, we managed to persuade, it must have been about a dozen or more high court hearings. And every time the courts have sided with us, once they've understood what we're trying to do. I've had similar sort of pushback from the parliamentarians because uh, their constituents go back and say, look, we are going to be de-enfranchised. Uh, uh, when we explain to them that's not the case, in fact, we're going to give the cricket associations more powers. And uh, one of the things I found was that the Pakistan Cricket Board was 
managing and running everything from the selective school cricket, about 400 schools in a country of our size, uh, who were allowed to play cricket and funded by the Pakistan Cricket Board, to funding the funding the club cricket. I mean that you know, so there was absolutely no ownership of even grassroots cricket in Pakistan. And I said that's wrong. These the stakeholders who actually are there, they should they should be the ones running cricket in their uh, cities, in their villages, and not uh, run centrally. We were build, we were empire building at the PCB. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result of which, we had somewhere in the region of about seven hundred people working for us. Anything from clerks to groundsmen to uh, in all over the country, uh, and it was a system which was dysfunctional. It had to change. It has, you know, without that change, we are never going to be consistent in what we do. We'll we'll produce the odd genius which we do, uh, with you know, the Vasim Akrams, the Wakar Yunuses, the Yunus Khans, Misbahs. But the system is not uh, conducive to producing cricketers through a pathway that would make. The to the top of where they should be. How many people have you now got working for the PCB? Because when it when you started out, a board of control of Pakistan, I think there were, were three of you, three three yeah. people. In the- yes, there was a gentleman called Mustafa Khan who used to more or less run it single handedly, um, and he was there for years. And uh, Arif Abbasi and one or two others, um, and they they were as good as any board in the world in terms of efficiency. But uh, frankly, in fairness, the, ga- the game has changed. Uh, the pressures and requirements of the boards have changed enormously over the years. In the core team, I've got about 200-odd people now, but I'm sort of looking to cut that back to about 150. So you inherited 700 and you've got rid of 500. No, we haven't. So far. We, at the moment, we've... Uh, put them to one side while we're trying to as soon as the cricket associations are functional a lot of these people would be delegated to those six cricket associations these are people like ground staff curators coaches Mm -hmm. uh, school trainers you know uh, people who go to school to give uh, basic coaching people like that are all on the PCB payroll at the moment and I'm pushing them down into the cricket associations with the clear instructions uh, as soon as the cricket associations have been formed um, that they should keep people on merit um, and not otherwise. There's a lot of talk in Pakistan about people losing jobs. I've worked out that with the six cricket associations, with 100 cities playing cricket, with 3,000 clubs, we are going to create more jobs for the former players. It'll take time. It's not going to happen overnight. But in a structured way, we're going to make sure that there's every city has coaches for schools. You know, the clubs will have coaches. Uh, the uh, city associations themselves will have uh, coaches and coaching staff and everything from uh, training young kids uh, on how to behave, on anti-corruption issues and understanding what the game of cricket is about. One of the biggest challenges we face when players come in from the cities, especially the remotest cities or villages, and to start them overnight in some cases, is to be able to cope with that step up. It's very, very culturally very difficult for them. So we we need people to support that, have uh, mentors, psychiatrists, uh, um, psychologists to help them cope with the stardom that they inherit. And they really do not have people to turn to to guide them. 
so there are big, big challenges in Pakistan, but an enormous potential. If you get the system right, more and more people, and especially the players as they're buying into it, uh, are beginning to see, uh, understand what we are trying to do. Asan, tell me about, you've got this young, really promising youngster, 17 years old, Nasim Shah. How did he get picked up and get on the tour this year? Uh, almost all the players that uh, get picked up at that age are through the PCB Academy system. We send we send scouts around the country to see whether there's a talent. When people hear there's a, a net going on for evaluation of players, a lot of kids just turn up. And if you're lucky, you get spotted uh, by someone who happens to be there, the right person at the right place. Other times you miss people. I, I get dozens of letters every every month of youngsters who say we went to the club, we went, went and did a test at the PCB Academy, no one looked at us, we were only given a couple of minutes batting, we didn't get a chance. Inevitably, what I'll always do is make sure the coaches have another look at that youngster. Because I feel that if, a, if someone is so passionate that he feels that he's uh, been hard done by, hasn't been given that opportunity, have a look at him. But that's the system we have at the moment. So it's they identify talent, they'll bring them into the National Academy in Lahore, give them a couple of weeks there. If they can, then they will try and allocate them to a club to play cricket. But this is all being managed centrally. It's the people who are running the clubs uh, or running the cricket, uh, regional cricket, were doing very little of this. And often we had to find places for players. Uh, Barbara Azum was a typical example. Uh, our coaches picked, up, picked him up fairly early on and they had to find a club for him to play for. Well, now he's your greatest batsman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, my big concern always is how many are we missing out uh, because of the system? And that's what we're dealing with. It's a big country, you know, 220 million people, which means I have 220 million selectors in the country. <laughs> They'll tell me exactly what they think of the team. Um, and uh, it becomes very uh, emotional and personal uh, very quickly when they feel someone is hard done by. But uh, it's an exciting environment to be working in, in spite of being very different to anything I was ever used to. Esan, you mentioned court action a short time ago. It seemed to me when we were in Pakistan a few years back that um, almost any Pakistan cricket supporter could sue the Pakistan Cricket Board in court if it didn't like the way things were being run. <laughs> and is, is that still the case? And is that something you've still got to contend with? Uh, very much so. There's something in uh, Pakistan, which I believe it also is in most of the countries in the subcontinent, is a public interest action. And cricket being what it is in the subcontinent, courts are very, very interested and willing to hear anything to do with cricket. So they don't have any issue in sort of accepting a case on cricket. At any one time, I would reckon we have about two dozen or more cases going on. I have a whole legal department spend an enormous amount of money uh, on on. Uh, cases. And what people do is they get clever. But we try and educate the High Court in Lahore and uh, Islamabad on the issues. So when they get a repeat application, uh, the courts now know and they turn them down. So people get clever and they'll go to some remote town out in the middle of Punjab and file a case there. 
So th- those are the sort of challenges we deal with. This is very much sounds like John Dice v. John Dice um, <laughs> going on in yep. Pakistan cricket. Can you give us an example of one of these cases? Uh, what that what they're like? I mean, what 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 they're about? At the moment, the most we have is about uh, the new domestic cricket we are bringing in and how we are going to take away all authority from the stakeholders who run regional cricket. Uh, Whereas actually, the truth is, it's reverse. We want them to take on more responsibility and run independently. But what's been happening is, in the past, the PCB has been giving large financial handouts to these people. And then I found that because they were non-registered organizations, they had no legal uh, entity or framework under which to work. It would go into the chairman's or president of the association's account, and we got no accountability for that. So you're in the position where you're reporting, or the patron of Pakistan cricket now is, is the prime minister, the greatest captain of Pakistan, one of the greatest cricketers of all time. What sort of obviously he's very busy he's got an awful lot in his hands but how, how much does he affect your work and what does he mean for Pakistan cricket very little uh, in terms of what goes on day to day if I really hit a roadblock uh, which happens occasionally about three times in the last 18 months I will send him a message and we'll meet uh, I see him about four times a year but that's mainly because I'm on the board of his cancer hospital the Shokut Khanum uh, Memorial Trust And what I'll often say to him after the meeting is, can we have five minutes uh, to discuss cricket? And it's literally five or ten minutes. Uh, He doesn't have the time and I feel quite guilty of sort of getting him involved with cricket. He's got bigger things to deal with. And I have a board of uh, governors who actually take all the decisions. Uh, We have a new constitution. We are bringing on independent directors on the board, four independent directors who will come with the skills necessary to run cricket, including a woman. We've made that absolutely mandatory, that there should be a female director. Uh, So we we have set up a corporate structure in line with uh, best practice in any corporation around the world. We'll come on to the issue of women's cricket in Pakistan, but which both Richard and I have written about this a great deal. It's a very important subject. But first of all, can you tell us about how you got involved in cricket? Were you a first-class cricketer or what was it? OK, uh, I was passionate about cricket. I played captain my school in Rawalpindi. It's the same school that people like Javed Perky, who captain Pakistan, went to, mm. and Ajaz Bhatt, former chairman of the PCB. Uh, and I played cricket with both of them. Uh, I used to play for the Pindi, Rahul Pindi Club. And uh, in, those, in those days in Pakistan, every test cricketer went back to his club to play. So I played against several uh, players who were currently at that time playing for Pakistan. I went to Government College Lahore, played for their uh, board 11. Great cricketing heritage, yeah. Government College Lahore. Provided, I think, seven of the first Pakistan test team in 1952, wasn't it? It's an amazing yeah. number. Yeah, amazing. And uh, unfortunately, that stopped. And that's one of the big concerns I have, is we need to get cricket back into universities. But in my, my terms, I was... It was 1964. I was 18 or 19. I was called up for trial. New Zealand were touring that year. That's right. right. Absolutely. Um, uh, And Collins was a left-arm fast bowler who I thought was good. I got called up for trials for the Kaiser Trophy as an 18-year-old or 19-year-old to play for the Rahul Pindi division. And the coach 
and the chief selector was Maksud Ahmed, Mary Max. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> yes. He liked to drink. Yeah, he liked his uh, nightlife. Yes. Yeah, no, uh, but a good man. He, I'd, I'd got him out once in a club match, and he took me to the nets and spent an hour with me after that match. And uh, he was very keen that I should play. And I was in the squad of World 16 to play in Kadi Aslan Trophy. Uh, didn't say a word to anyone at home. My mother happened to read it in a newspaper. And I said, oh, it's just cricket. It's nothing else. Uh, she said, uh, how much time will it take? Will you miss university? Will you miss, yeah. you know? And once I, I was under that sort of inquisition, she said to me, look, go and finish your studies and you can do whatever you like after that. So I said, why can't I just play cricket? And that, that was a short discussion because she said cricketers earn 100 rupees at the best a month. Mm. I don't think that's the life you're accustomed to. <laughs> <laughs> so I was literally within about three weeks shipped out to, or four weeks, uh, shipped out to England to go and become a chartered accountant. Uh, when I got here, I played a bit for Richmond uh, in the, uh, the uh, six, mid-60s. But... Uh, Club cricket is not the same as playing uh, the level of cricket I was playing. And being an article clerk, I could only play on weekends, which when we were supposed to study for the accountancy exams. Uh, so I said, okay, I won't make it to cricket, so let me try and be a decent accountant. Oh. So you're a bowler or a batsman, son? What was your speciality? I used to bowl left arm. Uh, I, I used to call it quick. People said I was sharp, but mm. not fast. Oh. And I would bat right hand at number seven, yeah. six or seven. Yeah. When you were at Richmond, of course, Mian Saeed, who was Pakistan's first yeah. cricket captain, although he didn't captain in tests, I think he deserved too mm. many people think that. He went on to play in Richmond. Was he still playing then? Or no, was no. That... But, uh, but Javed Perky, while he was at Oxford, had played there. Uh, and he introduced me to Richmond. Oh. You don't still turn your arm over at all, do you, SM? Really? Peter's team and mine are always, um, always <laughs> grateful for, <laughs> for left-arm bowlers or right-arm batsmen, or both. <laughs> yeah. Essen, you were tremendously influential in cricket administration before you took up uh, your appointment with PCB, which is perhaps something a little unusual in the history of Pakistan cricket. You had a tremendous reputation in 10 years at the ICC, latterly as chairman, particularly in the way that you transformed the finances of, of world cricket. But you, you said once that you stumbled into cricket administration. What actually led you into becoming an administrator? And was it a stumble or were you pushed? No, it was really a stumble. Uh, if you go back to the 1970s and 80s, there was no faxes, uh, certainly in the 70s. Uh, there was no internet or email of any sort. They had something called a telex machine to communicate with. Mm. If you wanted to call England from Pakistan, you had to book a call mm -hmm. and then wait for it to be put through. It could be, a, a, you know, in an hour's time, or it could be the next day. Uh, and then once you got through, the person you wanted to speak to may not be there. So what every test-playing cricket nation did was they had someone in uh, London who would be their representative to the ICC that was used as a conduit to communicate with, in those days, effectively the MCC who ran world cricket. Mm -hmm. Mm. When I was a uh, student in London in the mid-60s and then uh, uh, working as a chartered accountant in the 70s, a old family friend of mine represented Pakistan. He was a retired army colonel, uh, lo lovely man. 
and General Zahid Ali Akbar was the chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board. So there was an army connection there between them. Each time the colonel wanted or was had to deal with an issue at the ICC on cricket, he knew I, I sort of know, knew a little bit more about the game than he did. So he would call me and I'd go to his office and I'd write him a little note or paper about uh, issues to be discussed. And then one day he turned around to me and he said, this is st- uh, stupid. You seem to know more about the game than I do and you are more interested in it. So I'm going to ask General Zahid to nominate you instead of me. Uh, so that's how I actually got involved. Well, all, all credit. Lovely story. Yeah. Lovely story. And all, all credit to, uh, to him um, stepping aside. With the ICC, you had a major part in what's described as cricket's Big Bang, mm-hmm. the, the transformation of the finances of world cricket by selling in a bundle uh, instead of individually all the tournaments that the ICC presided over, particularly the, the World Cup. Um, Essen, can you give us an idea how much extra money that brought into world cricket at the time during the, well, during the noughties? Yeah. Well, um, when I got involved in 88 to 18, 89, I think, in cricket, the ICC budget was £100,000 a year. <laughs> and the members complained they couldn't pay that. Uh, it was too much. <laughs> so the MCC used to contribute a substantial portion of that. I think 40 or 50% came from the MCC. And they provided all the secretarial support. Uh, they had staff looking after all the affairs of the ICC. I remember being quite amused going to a, the, my first or second meeting, uh, looking at the accounts. And Cricket Australia were complaining bitterly about the legal cost, which is £3,000 that year. Hmm. Uh, and they said it was far too much, you know. Uh, and uh, we had to find ways of cutting all this down. So very quickly, I think, it, I came to the conclusion you could not be a governing body of the sport if you had a a budget of 100,000 and you were always uh, struggling for finances. And when I looked around the world, none of the cricket boards really were very wealthy in those days. I was fortunate uh, that by the time I started getting involved in ICC, which was uh, actually uh, the ICC uh, took a turn and the members decided that they should be running the affairs themselves and take it away from the MCC. I think it's really the MCC who realized that the time had come for them to step back, as they do. They're, they're wonderful like that. <laughs> They've taken the ICC up from 1909 uh, right up to, 19, uh, uh, to 1993. Uh, and then there was this terrible row between uh, Asia and England about who should uh, uh, host the uh, 1996 World Cup. Uh, and one of the fallouts from that was the MCC said, uh, you know, I th- we feel that you should uh, look after your own affairs and uh, develop yourselves. Uh, so we, okay, so we, we were now ICC, we were going to run world cricket. We still had a £100,000 budget. There was no way in the world we were going to be able to run it. Uh, having got the 96 World Cup, we had to now raise enough money to meet our commitments to all the other members. Of you know, we were going to pay each full member two or three thousand pounds a year, uh, and we were going to pay for the running of the ICC uh, office. We were going to have to find some money. I spoke to Cricket Australia in those days and said, "Well, how did you do in the '92 World Cup?" And they said, "Oh, uh, you know, we we were lucky to break even." Uh, so I said, what did you get from television? And I still remember what the person who'd done the television deal for them coming to my home in London 
and said, if you get five, between five and 10,000 pounds, take it and run. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> so I listened to him. I then started looking at what other sports did around the world, football being the main one. I spoke to a couple of broadcasters and said, okay, how can we change this and get more money into the game? And they said, look, what you do is at the moment the ICC allocates the World Cup to a country or a group of countries who run it. They run the commercial programs. They pay something to the other members. And then you move on to another host. They said, if we had a couple of events together, uh, so if you bundled a cup, say two World Cups and a couple of uh, ODIs or uh, uh, in the middle of the 50-over game, uh, I'm sure we'd be able to pay much more money. I was really attracted by that idea. I did a lot more investigation. I met some uh, people in Italy, of all the places, uh, who were running, uh, who had the rights to soccer. And they told me how they ran it. They became quite interested in cricket, and they look, started looking at it. And the, they told me that uh, they, th they thought instead of earning uh, at the most about $50 million a, a per World Cup, they could at least double that. Uh, so I was intrigued. I took the proposal back to the ICC board and said, look, we've got to move on and we've got to create revenues. And the way to do it is to bundle it. The biggest opposition I had was from South Africa and the West Indies. They were the hosts for the 2003 and the 2007 World Cups. And they felt that I was going to take away their opportunity to earn a lot of money. So I said to them, what do you consider a lot of money? They said, oh, what you and uh, India earned from the 96 World Cup. So I said, we earned $50 million uh, after paying off everyone. And uh, they said, what did England earn in the 99 uh, World Cup? I said, a similar amount, not much more. And that's my concern. I think we have potential to earn much more. They, so they, they said, no, no, we, we must do it ourselves. And eventually, I spoke to Ali Bakr, who was the chief executive of South African cricket at that time, and Pat Russo, who was the chairman of the West Indies Cricket Board. And I said, look, let me just go out and see what we can get, and then you decide whether you want to accept it or not. So I did some tentative uh, feeler, put some tentative feelers out. Uh, the indication I got was we'd get about $280 million. Uh, when I rang up Pat Russo and said, he laughed, he said, man, you'll never get that sort of money. Uh, if you do, don't even ring me again, just take it. <laughs> um, uh, Ali Bakker was a little more uh, measured. He said, that'd be good, but uh, do you think you can get it? I was very fortunate uh, that at the board, uh, uh, ICC board at that time, we had people like Ian McLaurin, who was chairman of Tesco's. Very distinguished yeah. man, yeah. Uh, we had Sir John Anderson from New Zealand who was running Lloyds Bank there. So we had people who were, who were financially savvy. And then uh, I got a lot of support, both from uh, Dalmia, who was the chairman of the ICC at that time, and Malcolm Gray, who was going to succeed him. Um, so armed with this sort of backing, I went, I actually then said, okay, let's put a group together and uh, see whether we can actually formally go and uh, tender these rights and see what we get. Uh, I insisted we had South Africa and uh, West Indies on that group so that they would be part of the process. 
Uh, and when we eventually uh, ran the process and had offers of $550 million, uh, it was- $550 million? Dollars. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yes. Um, and the, what I had done before that, before we even went out to the market, was I wrote out a paper on how we would distribute whatever money came in to the game. Because I, I thought to myself, okay, uh, $200, $250 million sounds a lot of money if we get it. Then we're going to argue about how it should be carved up between ourselves. So I actually wrote a paper how the members should each get a payout. It was known as the money paper in the ICC. And uh, one of the things I tongue-in-cheek suggested and got away with was that 6% of the top of all the media and commercial rights would go to the development of the game around the world to non-test playing countries. Mm. And uh, one of the directors said to me, well, 6% of zero is zero, so they won't get anything. Uh, I said, fine, but let's approve this anyway. Uh, and I got that, got away with that. And the great thing of that was that we got $30 million for the development of cricket around the world. That's the first time we had serious money to spread the gospel uh, in countries that had aspirations of playing higher level of cricket. And the next time round, when we did a, uh, uh, the next right cycle, which I was involved in, it was soon after I'd finished as the chairman of the ICC, they asked me to hang on and do that. Uh, we raised $60 million for the associate member development. Mm-hmm. So that, that I felt was you know, something worthwhile to have done. Uh, uh, West Indies and South Africa, instead of getting a hundred uh, fifty million each, got a hundred million dollars each, mm. uh, uh, which was for certainly for both of them. That was a game changer, uh, and uh, the, you know it's gone on from there. It's about uh, I think the last rate was about two point seven, two point eight billion dollars. Well, obviously, what so in other words, what you did was to completely transform for the better the finances revolutionised the finances of the game of cricket, for which I think you deserve enormous honour from every cricket lover in the world. What I love, though, is this information you've just given us about the spreading of the game. Well, one of the many wonderful things about the game of cricket over the last 20 years has been the way it has spread across to a bit into China. Afghanistan has emerged. Uh, You know, they're playing now major leagues in Germany. All around the world, it seems to be spreading. Tell us a little bit about about that. Look, cricket with ten countries, as it was uh, when I you know, uh, in those days, was not never going to be a global game. That was clear. So when I looked at how the game had spread, it had actually in the subcontinent, for example, or in Australia, it was the British Army which played a huge role in that. Uh, the during the East India Company time in the subcontinent, and later on, uh, the British uh, British Army there. Uh, the players used to play uh, cricket. The locals watched them and started getting involved. Uh, in India, it was the Parsis who took it up first, uh, followed by the. Uh, suddenly, the uh, it took off in India, and wherever there was a British uh, expatriate community, and then later on a uh, South Asian community from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, they would play cricket. So I knew there were seeds were there. We had to nurture them and make sure that they. Uh, were allowed and able to develop further. And so that's how I felt it was important for cricket to uh, be played in as many countries as possible. And the other conclusion that I came to, certainly when I was chairman of ICC, was there were some countries who 
were interested in cricket, but had never had the tradition like China uh, of having played it. But when I looked at China and looked at the population base there, uh, it had, was clear that there was enormous potential if we could get a foot foothold for cricket. The, when I spoke to their government, in fact, they approached me and said they wanted to become a member of the ICC. And uh, when I sort of tested that with some of the other members, they said, what does China want to do with cricket? I said, it's not what they want to do, it's the fact they're interested, we should encourage that. So I fast-tracked them, broke up several rules of the ICC, and fast-tracked them into becoming an associate member. Uh, and Afghanistan at the same time. They virtually one followed the other. Uh, when I met the Chinese government, I said, okay, now tell me about your interest in cricket. They said to me, look, we've been following cricket for the last 20 years, and we're very interested, we were very uh, taken up by the fact that a nation country like Sri Lanka won the 96 World Cup. Um, and we feel that we could be good at this game. And I said, why do you say that? They said, well, it's not a physical contact sport. It's a game of skill, and it's a game of the mind. And I thought that was absolutely spot on. And they said, you know, we can, we can get the skills, but we need help with uh, a number of other uh, things of cricket which we don't understand. I had told them that, you know, I, I was trying to just test how serious they were. So I said, you know, cricket is a way of life for us. Once you're hooked into it, you sort of, whatever else you do in life, uh, cricket is there, it's a way of life. And I spoke about the spirit of cricket and the ethos of cricket. Uh, they were very intrigued by that and they said, that's why we need you. Uh, we need you to tell us about the game and the culture and what goes with it. And we, so I said, we then started discussing how we could introduce cricket into China. And we ha I had this most amusing uh, conversation where I said, okay, so they, they said to me, they, we need coaches. We need coaches in our primary schools to teach our teachers to coach young children. And I thought that was very good. So I said, that's good. How many coaches do you think? And how will you get the schools to play cricket? They said, that's not a problem. We will order 1,000 schools to play cricket. <laughs> So I just looked and I said, you would order and they would play it? They said, yes. So I said, I don't think we have 1,000 coaches <laughs> to give you. So we, I came and uh, spoke to Malcolm Speed, who was the chief executive of the ICC. I said, this is what they want. He said, tell them to start with 100. 10 would be better. Uh, so we, we built on from that. Uh, and we started literally with 10 schools identified. And in about three or four years after I'd left the ICC, they, their school teachers, and they were all women, were good enough to play in a women's Asian Cup somewhere. Uh, Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's sad is in the last uh, eight or nine years, uh, China's been pushed to the back, back burner of the ICC's uh, priorities. And I've again started raising my voice on China saying that, look, the commercial potential in China, forget about anything else, is enormous. Look at the way they've taken on to soccer. Uh, today, the Chinese uh, league, uh, soccer league is probably bigger in terms of money than the uh, Premier League in England. They've opened up 5,000 soccer academies. Soccer is compulsory in schools. 
And when I talk to the Chinese, they tell me that their plan is to have 50,000 academies by 2025. That is the opportunity that cricket must grasp. The political climate regarding China has changed quite a bit. Can I just ask you, as a matter of fact, are there any, um, have any political or even ethical objections been raised to, um, to helping cricket in China from any quarter, given that particularly three countries, major cricket countries, are pretty much at odds with China at the moment, England, Australia, and, of course, India? Look, uh, I had a similar challenge uh, when I took over as ICC chairman when a group of, uh, of the uh, parliamentarians' cricket committee came and saw me and said, ban Zimbabwe. Mm. They've taken the farms, they've human rights issues there. And I said to them, you make the political call and we will look after the cricket. If our mandate is to promote the game, to make sure it uh, um, creates, uh, it's a medium of creating goodwill between countries. It shouldn't be that we used as a political tool. Uh, if you don't want England to play China, ban England. I think it was Tony Blair's time. And uh, they were, I sense they were very reluctant to do that. And then I started making inquiries why England, who had after all pulled out to the Olympics in uh, Moscow uh, earlier on, was so reluctant to take an action against China. It all came down to the African vote for the Olympics, which was then subsequently held in, uh, in London. So there, there was a lot of political background when uh, we started looking at these things. And I was very clear. I said, you know, we're going to use cricket as a force for goodwill, as a force for peace. Uh, if the politicians want to do something different, we'll respect their views. We will not make countries play against each other. Uh, but we are not going to get involved in the politics. And the same applies in China today. Yes, countries are at odds with China, but is that an isolated case? Uh, look at what's happening in Kashmir today, in the Indian-occupied Kashmir. So it's selective. It uh, all depends on what is uh, important for countries. And understandably, countries will promote their self-interests uh, and put that as priority. But I think it be, the world would be far better off if we kept politics out of cricket. Well, politics and cricket, of course, very much intertwined in the relationship of um, Pakistan and India. Uh, all cricket lovers, I think, across the world would love to see the restoration of bilateral series between Pakistan and India. Is that it's a series, it's, as a test series, it should be the equivalent of the Ashes? I just wondered if the PCB has put any new proposals to restore the bilateral relationship and if you've had any response on the Board of Control of India. And more generally, though, can this restoration be achieved without a political settlement between Pakistan and India? Look, when you look historically at the cricket relations between India and Pakistan, uh, Pakistan has always been ready to play India. The political push has come out of India a number of times. Uh, when I became the chairman of the ICC in 2003, India and Pakistan were not playing each other. I, the first meeting of the ICC that I chaired, I held in Mumbai, and, uh, or Mumbai as it is now. And uh, I used that opportunity to meet Indian government ministers to understand why there was a reluctance on their side to play against Pakistan. Uh, they listened to me very politely, uh, lovely uh, atmosphere, uh, uh, but they wouldn't 
give me a reason that I was sort of satisfied me. Raj Singh, who was then the chairman of the uh, BCCI, uh, said to me, I know the foreign minister. I will go and talk to him one-to-one -one and get back to you. Uh, he got back to me the next day and said, uh, yeah, there's an issue. Uh, I said, what is it? He said, well, the chairman of the Pakistan board is a um, general in the army, a serving general. And uh, he, was in, he was the director of military operations when Kargil took place. So I went back and I told General Musharraf this and I told uh, Tokir this. Tokir said, should I resign? I said, no, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, don't push, start, don't push India to play. They will not play you. I have to say, but just an inter I talked to Tokir about this and he, was, he said that there he was in, he was in charge of the army at the, at the line of control. Yeah. And every morning when he had a chat with his opposite number in, uh, in India, the first thing they'd always talk about was cricket. Yeah. <laughs> because they, they, that was a way of sort of absolutely breaking the ice. Yeah. Yep. No, he's, he's a great character, Toki, and uh, uh, very, very popular at the ICC when he used to go there. So, you know, with that sort of background, uh, I use that in a way to, when Toki resigned uh, or came off the board uh, from, from the Pakistan Cricket Board, uh, I was back in India and I reminded them what they'd said. I said, he's there no longer. Are you going to send a team? Uh, the good thing was at that time that the president of BCCI and a couple of former presidents of BCCI went with me to see their government. And they were more vocal about how important it was for India and Pakistan to play than for me, than for me to say very much. I, being the chairman of the ICC, had to be a little neutral uh, in how hard I pushed that. But they were very vocal. They were very uh, you know, clear that they wanted India-Pakistan cricket to resume. And the Indian government agreed and sent a team in 2004. Huge. And, and that was an enormous success. I mean, the Indians who came to Pakistan and came to Lahore couldn't believe the friendship and the hospitality and the fact they went into restaurants, into shops, and once people found out they were Indians, they wouldn't take money from them. Uh, it was enormous goodwill that was created. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it was the Indian... Uh, high commissioner in Islamabad who said you gave visas to 15 or 20,000 Indians uh, to come to Pakistan, you sent back uh, 15, 20,000 ambassadors. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the current situation is a bit different, uh, which again, uh, you know, pa Pakistan has tried a couple of times. Uh, my predecessor tried very hard to uh, persuade India and Pakistan to play. They even signed a memorandum of understanding. Uh, India turned around and eventually said, sorry, we can't honor that because our government has to give approval. I have taken the view and I let it be known to the BCCI that we are always there to play, but we are not going to be running after them. It is their call. When they're ready to play, we will be willing to play. It's a great pity. When India and Pakistan play, there's no other cricket match in the world which is followed as closely and as passionately as an India-Pakistan match. Uh, I've been told that anywhere between 200 and 250 million people watch it every day when mm -hmm. India and Pakistan are playing, as they have at ICC events. Uh, so the, clearly, the uh, public wants it, but the politicians in some countries don't. Just speaking as a lover of cricket, on behalf of the hundreds of millions of people who love cricket around the world, we long to see a resumption of relations 
Uh, I'm sure that the the Indians will have their side of the story. Having listened to you, we're going to we're going to invite Surav Ganguly, the the president of the BCCI, to to put his own point of view. Yeah. And I hope very much when we write to him, he'll accept our invitation. But there's one other pressing matter we'd love to talk to you about, and that is the prospects for foreign tours of Pakistan. Richard and I have taken four or five tours of Pakistan. Obviously, we're just very ordinary players. We've had a wonderful time, had an amazing reception. Tell me about the uh, the prospects for future tours. It's uh, starting again now of Pakistan. OK, look, uh, I made it very clear when I took over as chairman of PCB uh, that our default position was that Pakistan is going to play all its matches at home. Uh, it is... Playing at neutral venues uh, was a very easy uh, option and uh, uh, effectively, uh, you know, you uh, opt out of the possibility of playing at home. Uh, the, the biggest challenge was to make sure that the country that had suffered as a result uh, of that attack in 2009 came first. So I spoke to the Sri Lankan board. Uh, they uh, were hesitant in the beginning. They sent uh, their uh, security team to Pakistan. Their high commissioner got involved. And at every stage, they said to me, there's no reason why we shouldn't be coming here. Uh, and so clearly, uh, their board officials were still nervous uh, on whether they could take that leap. Uh, you know, what happens if something goes wrong? Uh, so I got their chairman across to Pakistan. He spent time. He looked around. Uh, and I'm sure, like yourselves, when you go to Pakistan, you wonder what the fuss is about. Uh, and he, he more or less said that to me. Uh, so they sent another security advisor. I think he was a major or colonel from the army, uh, retired. He, after the first day, he said, right, I'm going shopping with my wife and I don't need anyone to come with us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, once uh, we ma- ma- well, once we gave Sri Lanka that confidence. Uh, And that was with a lot of assurances about heavy security. We had to give that to them for their comfort more than anything else. Uh, I I thought it was over the top, but we would have done anything to get them back. But once the team that was attacked was back in Pakistan, uh, that made an enormous difference. That helped us getting Bangladesh to come and play in Pakistan. But more importantly for me in the end was the MCC sending out a side. Mm. The MCC has been absolutely brilliant, uh, very supportive of cricket in Pakistan. Uh, we are also very fortunate that we have in Pakistan a high commissioner, Christian Townsend, who was Theresa May's national security advisor. So he understands the dynamics of the country. He understands Pakistan. And he's been very, very important, in fact, pivotal in getting the travel advisory to Pakistan changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that has made a big difference. Having Very good to hear. Yeah, Very good to hear. Having, having the MCC team there with Kumar Sangakara, who was on that bus in 2009, mm-hmm. lead the team and play, you know, was massive. Uh, we had a match at Qadhafi Stadium uh, where 18,000 people turned up mm-hmm. to watch an MCC side play. And... Uh, they played a couple of matches, uh, four matches in Pakistan. We reduced the level of security for them a little bit. They went sightseeing. I think they played golf every day they were there. Uh, and started getting a feel for the country. 
And then, of course, we have uh, the PSL has played a big, big part in getting cricket back into Pakistan. And yeah. uh, up to, to uh, 2018, you know, the, 18, there were two matches in Pakistan. 2019, we had eight. This year, all the PSL, out of the 34 matches, 30 have been played in Pakistan. Uh, the remaining four were affected by COVID. Uh, but we had 425 overseas players apply to, for the draft to play in the PSL. Now, that you can't get a stronger endorsement than that, to have 425, if I'm more than 425, uh, overseas players saying that they want to play uh, in the PSL, knowing that it was going to be held in Pakistan. Uh, as far as the other boards are concerned, it's a... Uh, it's work in progress. The main thing is to build their confidence. Right. We've had uh, Tom Harrison from the ECB. We've had uh, plus a board director of the ECB uh, who was involved in security in his working life. Uh, we've had uh, ch the chairman and chief executive of Cricket Ireland. We've had the ch uh, former chief executive of Cricket Australia. Uh, plus all their security consultants come and uh, visit Pakistan as our guests. Uh, we've had the Players Association people at PSL matches uh, to show them what Pakistan is about. And uh, in the end, I mean, one of them uh, said to me, I can't think of a good enough reason not to come. Yeah. Uh, quite, quite right, too. Listen, it would be a um, it would be wonderful if an England team could go back to Pakistan and in the fairly near future. We certainly hope all international visitors go back. There's great scope in Pakistan for private tours and of slightly better sides than the ones yes. that Peter and I have taken out there. And um, if that's something that the PCB could focus on, uh, colleges and schools, uh, it's a wonderful place to have a pre... Pakistan would be a wonderful place to have a pre-season tour. And if um, I'm sure if the PCB set up some sort of initiative to encourage them, it would be... It'd be very well received, and there's a very good cricket tour market in the travel market in England, and Pakistan should certainly have a piece of it. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. But the big stumbling block was the travel advisory. You know, when you get schools and you get, get the parents looking at that, they get nervous. Mm. Uh, now that that's been dealt with, uh, we're definitely something certainly that we've been uh, we've been looking at seriously. Uh, Vaseem Khan, our chief executive, who was uh, with Les uh, chief executive of Leicester, uh, has been already in discussion with a couple of counties to see whether they will come out. Uh, schools, absolutely, I think people to people contact at that age is so important. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to do with our uh, first class cricket is encourage overseas one or two overseas players to come and play there. It's mm -hmm. great for our players to be playing with international players. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's not going to happen overnight. That's sort of in the next two, three year plan. But we're working towards that uh, to make our, you know, sort of take our first class level, uh, cricket level to a, a totally different level uh, and have it so competitive and so uh, attractive for overseas players to want to play. Uh, our players will benefit as a result of that. Well, I certainly hope that comes to fruition, Hassan. Um I think Peter would join me in saying that there's one thing perhaps the Pakistan Cricket Board might um, warn impending visitors about or they might uh, make provision for. They should warn 
Pakistani hosts not put out too good a team. <laughs> that was a, a problem that, you know, that we've persistently encountered. In fact, Asan, you, I'm going to give you a figure. With the first uh, 26 matches which Richard and I uh, played against uh, Pakistani teams, we lost all 26. <laughs> Eventually, um, we defeated the University of Sagoda oh, in a narrow finish. Uh, uh, but... Um, Look, it's such a joy to talk to you. Uh, we could talk forever, um, but I'm going to have to bring this conversation to a close. But I want to do it by thanking you on behalf of every cricketer and every cricket lover in Britain uh, for, for, for allowing Pakistan to come over here this troubled summer. It's such a joy. We're so looking forward to the series and we're so grateful to Pakistan for sending a team which is going to give some joy in this difficult summer. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, sending the Pakistan team here is what the spirit of cricket is about. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, they'll be very, very much appreciated for, for coming here, Esan. My thanks uh, as well to add to Peter's. And well, perhaps I could just say Pakistan Zindabad. Pakistan Zindabad! <laughs> Esan, thank, thank you, you so much, much for joining us. Yeah, um, thank you. And um, wish we could have had more time with you, and perhaps um, you know we'll meet again during the during the summer. In the meanwhile, it has to be goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in South East London, and it's goodbye from Peter O'Born here in Wiltshire.